We're going to kind of recap a little bit uh, from last week, and then we'll get into the meat of today. So last week, we studied uh, verses 1 through 5, which says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained an introduction by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we, we, we exalt or, or we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also boast in tribulation, and knowing that the tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint. But the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit in whom he has given us. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Important portion of scripture. It's Paul laying a groundwork for how we're supposed to see Jesus. Oh, by the way, if you're a child, a teenager, go ahead and, and head on back. I forgot to do that. So Romans chapter 5, 1 through 5 is a lot like, uh, it's a rhetorical effect in the sense that it's like a rosebud. It's a tight package of what Paul's about to do for the rest of the chapter. We're about to give some flowers to women that we love. I hope men, you understand this week is Valentine's Day. That's your cue. If you had forgotten, you don't have any excuses now, but we give flowers to the ones that we love. And many times in the, the bouquet of flowers, there are those roses that just come into full bloom and they're big and they're beautiful and you can in, inspect all the petals and you can smell the sweet savor and the aroma of the flower. And my, my wife loves to smell those flowers. They're beautiful. They're fun to have around the house. Uh, but much of what we're seeing in Romans chapter 5, especially the beginning, is that bud, that bud that's packed really tightly, that has everything in it that that flower will eventually become. And it starts to bloom out over the next couple of verses. And today, we're going to talk about the blooming effect of Romans chapter 5 and what it looks like in the full story. There's an assurance that Paul is pointing to. This assurance is, is a verdict that's already been issued it's a verdict from heaven that's already been issued over each one of us. And through faith or over faith, it is repeated, it is ratified, and it is fulfilled. That through Jesus, the verdict that we have in God, in our station in life, is ratified, it is, it is fulfilled, and it's repeated over and over and over in our life. By faith, we are at peace with God, which is the verdict that he lays out. That by Jesus' sacrifice, we're not peace with God. We don't have to earn our way to God. We don't have to earn peace with God. We don't have to hope that he has a peaceful nature towards us and us towards him. We don't have to hope that our relationship is copacetic and that we can walk with God. No, we know through Jesus, we are at peace with God. When people see Jesus, they recognize the presence of the living God in their midst. This is very much akin to the original reader would have heard this and thought of the Old Testament and the priests that had to sacrifice and they had to go through ritual in order to get into the temple. And now Paul says, who was very skilled in kind of the old religion, he was very skilled in Judaism, Paul says you have access to God through Jesus. You are in his presence. You are at peace with God. You don't have to go through religious and ritual practices to get into God's presence and into his peace. You don't have to hope that you are perfect enough, like the perfect priest set aside, born into a lineage of priests, fulfilling all the religious duties to be a part of the Holy of Holies. That you in your sinful state, in your broken condition, being reconciled to God can be present in his presence, be present in the Holy of Holies. This is what, Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 is setting up. 
It's giving us a glimpse into what Isaiah 40 prophesied, the glory of God that all flesh, all men and women, all of humanity would understand the full-on glory of God, the glory of God being our good relationship with him, that we have an honest station to call him a good, good father, that we have a good relationship with him, that we're not those who are fearful of a judgmental or a vengeful God, that we are those who are in a good and and consistent station with our God, that we know he's a good, good father. And that's why Colossians chapter one and verse 27 makes a lot of sense. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it. It says, to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is in you the hope of Christ, the hope of glory, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let me read that over again. Uh, Then God chose to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, that among the Gentile people, not those who were separated and set apart from God as his chosen people, but those who were on the fringe group, those who didn't have access to the Holy of Holies, that we've been set apart into this, this mystery of faith, that is access to a real and personal relationship with Jesus, with God, showing off the hope of the glory of God that we can sit in. So when people see Jesus, it's because they see him through a congregation of people, through a congregation of his people, so that in spaces like this, folks understand what it is. They can mimic our, they can mimic our relationship. They can see how we do it. They can fall in line with the congregation of what it is to be in God's presence. Our hope, our hope is that we will be renewed humans, that we will be as we ought to be, as Romans chapter one, or chapter five, verse one through five says that we were, we will somehow be transformed into that perfect person that we're called to be. That that moment of tension, right? The the last portion of that scripture says that there's, we should boast in our tension, we should boast in, in the pressures of life, that that gives way to proven character. And that proven character is our life representing more and more of Jesus. Boasting in the pressures of life as we're caught between this age, the old age, and the new age, there's some middle ground tension where we know life should go a certain way. We know we should be experiencing something in God that we're not. And there's a tense moment of how we're working that out, whether it's the love of God, the favor of God, whether it is his healing power, whether it is his opportunity to bless our lives, whether it's the restoration and rebuilding of relationships. Many times we live in that moment of tension where we haven't quite, we haven't quite secured the promise that God has for us. So verse five ends with this idea, the love of God, that God's love is so real, so awesome that we love him because he first loved us. So the love of God that's shed abroad in our heart or the love of God that's spilling over in our heart is in response to what he's done to us. It's a reciprocal relationship that I love him intimately and deeply because he first loved me. So today we're gonna jump into Romans chapter five, verse six, through 11. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and jump there. But this is, the the main point of this is, is really about the death of Jesus revealing the love of God. This is the full weight of the death of Christ. We're going to talk today about the full weight of what it means for Jesus to have died for us. The death of Jesus, it's not a picture of an angry God with Jesus expressing his kindness towards us as to pacify his father 
who would otherwise remain angry. Listen, there is a line of theology that many of us have heard taught over and over and over again, that God is mad at you, that God is angry with humanity, that he is so angry at the filth of sin within humanity that what he did was he demanded, in order for justice to have her appeasement, he demanded the sacrifice of an innocent man, which was his son. It's akin to a very broken and abusive relationship where you might have grown up with an abusive father who did nothing but beat on his children. And yet the older brother says, I've got to stop this. This is going to get bad. And he steps in the way of that blow that that abusive father would strike the younger child with. He steps in the gap. And many of us have heard that this is how Jesus reacts to the father. That this is the relationship with the Godhead. We have a mean, angry, and vengeful God who must satisfy justice by demanding Jesus that Jesus' death on the cross is like a quid pro quo. That Jesus' death on the cross is the necessary capital for God to forgive. He can't forgive just because he's God. He has to be paid off. Most of us have heard this line of thinking in theology. It's totally broken to what Scripture actually says. We're going to walk out why that is totally broken here today. The love of God is a free gift. We don't have to earn the love of God. We don't have to seek after the love of God. We don't have to force ourselves to some religious rite in order to experience the love of God. The love of God is a free gift given to all men. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to chapter 5 of Romans and verse 6. I'll start off with verse 6. I'll read through 11, then we'll go back and recap says, while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than Having now been justified by his blood, we, should be, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, we also exalt or we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. All right, that's the language that we're given to understand this. This is the, this is the rosebud starting to unfold a little bit. Let me explain this. It makes no sense. It makes no sense for someone to rescue another person via a stand-in and claim that they love you. It makes no sense. It makes no sense for me to tell my wife, I love you, I love you, I love you, but I'm not sacrificing for you. That guy's gonna do it. It Makes no sense for the God of the universe to claim his unadulterated love for his his creation and then send a stand-in. Yet that's how most of us view the person of Jesus, that he's simply a stand-in for God, an appeasement for a punishment. Paul sees Jesus' actions on the cross as straight from the heart of the Father. We don't have good language for this. So eventually in church history, we don't have very good language for how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work together and their outworkings. And so what we've done is we've created this doctrine of the Trinity. Some of you have heard that word before, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that there's one God, but in three distinct parts. For many of us, that's still a mystery. It's hard to understand. 
St. Patrick did his best work when he picked from the field a three-leaf clover. And he said, listen, it's one plant, it's, it's one blossom, but it has three distinct petals. It's all the same, but one. Other men have coined ideas of water, that water is the same essence, it's the same substance, but it has three distinct natures. It has a solid, it has a gas, it has a liquid. The vapors, the, the mist or the, the, uh, the, the steam being the vapor and the solid, the ice that we're driving on this week. And then we see the liquid and it rained earlier this week and that's why we gave way to ice later. We understand it to a degree, but it still doesn't help us codify the idea of what Paul is honestly saying, that he's saying from the Father's love exudes a whole nother person, that from his love is personified this person named Jesus. And in Jesus, everything that he does is akin to or is, or is, is, is a direct result of the Father's love for us. So when he hangs on that cross, when he gives of himself, it's not because he's trying to pacify the father. It's because the father is showing off his love. Paul talks about the father sending the son and it's clear and it's been clear in my opinion for all of eternity that this is an expression of the love of God, the love of the father. So we messed up and we sinned against God. It didn't require a new game plan. It didn't require a new perspective on God's part. What happens is Jesus literally becomes the expression of God's love. The same love that compelled God to create the world, the same love that compelled God to create humanity, the expression of that love is walked out in human form and it is the person of Jesus. So let's jump into verse seven or six as we run through this. It says, for when we were uh, still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who is the ungodly? The ungodly, as Romans chapter one and verse eight puts it, those who have abandoned God. All of us in some way, shape or another have abandoned God. That's how we fall into sin. And I hate the term fall into sin because it's like, you know, I tripped and oops, I accidentally sinned. That's not what happens. We take the shovel, we dig the hole and we jump on in. That's how sin really manifests in life. We know the right thing to do and we decide not to do it, which is what we have in our free will. Yet verse six says that at the right time, when we were without strength and we couldn't muster enough strength on our own to do the right thing, this is when Christ died for those who have rebelled against him. It's going to get deep here in a second and we need to find out how deep it goes. And then he starts to ask a big question in, in verse seven. And you can see the musings of Paul as he's writing. He's like, you wouldn't die for a righteous man. Maybe you'd die for a good man, but you really wouldn't die for the, for the, for the righteous. You wouldn't die for the perfect person. You wouldn't sacrifice yourself for the perfect person, would you? In fact, ask yourself the question, who would you really die for? This is what Paul is challenging the reader to ask. Who would you give your life over for? Would you die for the president? Some of you are like, not this one. <laughs> so we're like, I don't know, he's not too bad. And then would you die for a senator, a congressman? Would you die for a governor? Depends on the state, right? Illinois, no way. Iowa, maybe, kind of like her. Which, which official would you give your life over for? Maybe bring it closer to home. Would you die for your spouse? Well, yeah, of course I'd take a bullet for my wife. I, I want to preserve her life, but, but what if... What if taking that bullet meant that your kids were without 
their father that much needed influence or without their mother that much needed influence? Is it that simple to make the choice? Is it simple enough to make a choice that, that you would die for someone who's a good person? Well, they're a good person. I, I might risk it for them. But if they were perfect, if they looked perfect on the world stage, that's hardly the person you want to give your life over for. You don't give your life over for someone who has it all together. You give your life over to someone who's struggling a little bit. You give your life over to someone who's trying to do the right thing because you hope that there's something inside them that inspires the rest of the world on to do great things. But when they're totally and utterly righteous, it's hard to give your life over for them because no one can match that perfection. Paul is musing in his writings and asking the reader, the question, who would you give your life for? And then he goes on to my favorite scripture in the entire New Testament. He goes on to, my, to the scripture that I think we should all read and read over and read over and read over and study and study and study. He goes on to verse eight in Romans chapter five. But God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let me explain something. Uh, the King Jimmy translation, King James. King James is not LeBron, right? LeBron didn't write a Bible. The King James is an old, old school version of the Bible that uses old English. But in that old English translation, sometimes there's some really good words used. And in verse eight, we have this idea that God demonstrates his love towards us. It's not a very good, it's not a very good uh, uh, usage of the words. In fact, the reader would have, would have heard something totally different. The King James actually says that God condemneth his love towards us. That's a better, better word, but most of us don't understand Old English. So what does this mean? This means to bond together. It should say this, but God bonds together his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So let me explain what this means. It sounds simple that while we were far from God, God died for us. Great. Hallelujah, it paves way for our redemption. But it's so much deeper than that. God literally sends his son to stick to you with his love like glue in the moment that you feel the most distance from him. So the moment you are deep in sin and you are far from God is when he runs out to snatch you up, to stick next to you, to bond himself to you in Christ. So that even in your sin, you can't escape his love so that even in your rebellion against him, you can't escape his love. Again, as this flower unfolds, as this, as this uh, bud begins to blossom, we see nuances of what Paul is talking about. He's literally giving us a picture that the death instrument that was the cross was the way God shows his unadulterating love. Now, that death instrument that is the cross, most of us, again, have a very good Western ideology of what it is, that it's a pretty picture of God and his sacrifice, and that makes us feel good. We have an idea that it's a, a religious icon, and that makes us feel pretty good. That it's a marker that when we see on buildings, we know these people probably adhere to the tenets of the Christian faith, and that makes us feel good. First century Christians in the first century world would have looked at the cross as an instrument of absolute torture. The cross was worse than saying the F word. You didn't mention the word crucifixion or cross in mixed company, and you definitely didn't mention those words in good company. You wouldn't allow your children to look at the multiple crosses that were put up by the Roman Empire to show their strength and their strong hand. You wouldn't allow your children to gaze at the rotting and dead corpses being picked away by birds as you walked by. This was a grotesque image 
Yet the first church saw the power of the cross. And the Bible literally says what God, or I'm sorry, what man or the enemy intends for evil, God will turn around for our good, for the, for the sake of those who what love and, and are called according to his purpose. We see that written in scripture. It's testifying to this idea of the cross, that this death instrument would be transformed, that it would be transformed into a marker that says this is hope and this is love. When we read that while we were yet sinners, Christ did die for us, what we are literally hearing is that the instrument that was meant to be a death, a death blow to the church, a death blow to God's rescuing plan, the instrument that was meant to silence the voice of the Messiah now becomes a symbol for the love of God, for the love of God so deep, so great, and so grand that we can't run from it a symbol of the love of God that is so real and so palpable that we stick to it like glue, that we can't seem to find our way away from it. This is why folks in their most desperate moments, their most sin-stained moments, will feel the presence of God reaching out to them and they don't know what to do and they break down, they cry, they repent, they come to God, they make a life change, they make a shift because even in your most desperate situation, his love is still there. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. We have to ask the hard question around scriptures like this. If this is true, if Romans chapter five and verse eight is true, then what do we make of the theology that says the cross is the payment so that God can finally forgive? If the cross is payment so that God can finally forgive, then God at the moment of crucifixion would have been in Caiaphas sentencing Jesus to death. God would have been in Pilate sentencing Jesus to death because those would have been the instruments used to, to fulfill the will of God. God would have been in the Roman soldier who is nailing the nail into the hands of Christ because they would have been working out his will, his unadulterated will, yet that's not what scripture says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19 says it like this. God was reconciling the world to himself. He was in Christ not counting people's sins against them as he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. That at the moment of salvation, where do we find God? In the person of Jesus, that his love, his kindness, his unadulterated passion for humanity comes out in that action. That even in our sinful state, that when people see Jesus, when they really see Jesus, they should be seeing the love of God to the extent, not that he would just die for us, but that the will and the passion and the plan of God would be wrapped up in this death trap called the cross. And at the cross, Jesus, it says plainly, 2 Corinthians 5.19, he is not counting the world's sins against them. This is the same as Romans chapter five and verse eight, that while we were yet sinners, Christ still died. Why are you trying to work your way to God? Why are you trying to fix your past? Why are you trying to tell him you are sorry enough? Why are we trying so much in this life to figure out how to pay him back for the sacrifice that he gave us? Why do we feel unworthy? Why do we feel short when we come up to the cross? The cross is not a place where we should feel diminished. The cross is a place where we should feel accepted and loved and drawn into God's arms. He is not counting your sins against you. 
And even in the moment of your worst and most depraved sin, that is the moment that Jesus died for. This is a difference in understanding justification versus salvation. Many of us have an idea of salvation, and maybe we don't have a good biblical one, but the idea is really simple, that salvation is the ultimate rescue from death and from decay. That's the ultimate rescue from the outworkings even of sin. But justification is God declaring that we are his people. Is God declaring that we are his There's two different points here. One, we are saved, and many of us know that we are saved. We're rescued from hell. We've got our get out of hell free card. We've got it stamped. And when this life is over, we're going to heaven. But we don't know what it is for Jesus to be Lord to the extent that we are justified. We don't understand what it is to be called his own, to be called his property, to be called his people, to be called his children. Let's go over verse 10 here, and he runs down. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's go back to verse 9. He says, uh, much more than having now been justified, as we just talked about, by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. And some of you go, there you go, pastor. That's that word wrath. That's God talking about how mean and vengeful and spiteful he can be. He gets angry at sin. We know the Bible says he's angry towards sin. Let me explain the biblical definition of wrath. If you study out what the early rabbis, how they taught about the idea of God's wrath, if you study out what the Old Testament really talks about as the wrath of God here. It's very simple. Here's what it is. If you ever have something like with scales on it, like those those patterns that the kids have on their shirts with those little uh, shiny little buttons and you go one way and it gives one picture and you push the other way and it gets a different picture. You know what I'm talking about? Or if you go against uh, maybe a reptile, some snake skin, and you go one way and it's smooth and you go the other way and it's kind of jagged and hard, that's the wrath of God. If we, do, if we do what God tells us to do, we feel the path that he's intended for us. But the moment we buck what he's instructed us to do, we feel the shards of his love in the wrong way. We feel the love of God, but in the wrong, in the wrong, in the, in, in the, the wrong vein. Let me explain it this way. You know, we have two young sons and there's, they're so mischievous at times. And they're so curious, especially when they were little and nobles finally growing out of that stage. And I can remember with both of them cooking around the stove and we turn the stove on, it gets warm. And I tell them as a good dad would, don't touch the stove. And inevitably, what do they do? They reach up and touch it. Every kid does it. And they burn their little hands. They burn their little fingers. Now, my children could say that my sovereign father was so mad at me that he hurt me when I touched that stove. Yet what happened? They didn't do what I asked. And because they didn't do what I asked, because I know what's best for them, they experienced my love in a way that they didn't really want to experience. My love said, do this, you'll be safe. But they went against it. So they experienced the backside of the love that I have for them. The side that wants to keep them safe, they felt the the consequence to a sin. This is the wrath of God. It's not saying that God is like Zeus and that he has a lightning bolt and he's ready to strike you down the moment you mess up. It's really about personal responsibility that you and I are called, are called to do the will of God. And the moment we don't, there are, there are, well, there are ramifications. 
And sometimes those ramifications hurt. Sometimes those ramifications are painful. Sometimes those ramifications even seem harsh. But his love said, do this. And we decided to do something else. But we know through verse 10 that we can even be saved from the consequences of our stupid actions if we'll just allow his love to wash over us. Verse 10, for if, When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That we come back to the place we should be. Reconciliation is a really easy idea to understand. You are made as you ought to be. You are made as you were intended to be. You are reconciled. You are at peace with God. You are receiving his favor. You are back in in a station of favor with God. We've been reconciled with him, made as we ought to be, and we will be saved, ultimately saved from sin and death. Paul is setting up the argument that this is the hard stuff. The hard stuff we're talking about is understanding that you're at peace with God. The hard stuff that we're talking about is understanding that even in your most deepest, darkest, and secretive sin, that God still died for you. And that death matters, that it washes away the sin. It cleanses the palate. It makes it so you don't have to suffer the consequences even of the sins of your past, that God can wash and scrub that out and that you don't have to worry about your relationship with God, that you can live in that space of glory where you understand and represent that you have a relationship with a good, good father and you can say it honestly. That's the hard stuff. And for most of us, that's where we get parked. For most of us, our life is spent living in this space where I'm trying to prove something to God. God, I'm trying to prove to you that I'm good enough. I'm trying to prove to you, God, that that I've really sacrificed enough. I'm trying to prove to you, God, that I'm worthy. No, you're not worthy for anything you could ever do. You're only worthy because of what Jesus has done. You are only worthy because of the sacrifice of Christ for what that cross truly means. Then he moves on into verse 11. And not only that, here it gets to the easy part. Not only that, but we also rejoice or boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So he talks about reconciliation. We put it put as we ought to be in Christ, in our station with God, so that we and God can have a communal relationship that's as it was intended. But then he moves on and says the reconciliation. This is a different type of speech. This isn't talking about our, simply our relationship with God. This is talking about the totality of our life being put back together the way he intended. That you can now be the person God called you to be. You don't have to worry about whether you're going to miss it or make it right. You don't have to worry about your health issues. You don't have to worry about your relationship issues. You don't have to worry about the financial stresses in your life. He's going to make it right the way he intended it. Now, what happens is we start to look at our relationship with God in a different paradigm and we try to work out our salvation. We try to fix our salvation with our own efforts. We try to fix our salvation, fix our relationship with God, prove our goodness, prove our righteousness. And then the reconciled part, the part that's supposed to be as God intended, breaks down. If there's anything in your life, in your life right now, that isn't as it should be or as God intended it, it's directly related to how you see God. It's directly related to how you have the the relationship you have with him. That there's something in your life you're trying to earn. 
Maybe it's a broken relationship with a spouse or a loved one. And you're saying, God, if, if, if I do more for you, you'll fix this, right? God, if I, if I pray more, if I spend more time in the Bible, if I give more, if I serve more, eventually you'll fix it, won't you, Jesus? And then there's times where we get sick and, and, and our bodies hurt and we say, God, if I, just, if I just do enough, eventually, if I do enough spiritual calisthenics, eventually you have to answer my prayer, you'll fix the problem. No, 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 no. You are set to write with God. He died for you in your most sinful state. He washes the slate clean. He makes you right. And then everything else takes care of itself. What does he say about searching for the things of this life? Seek him and his righteousness. Seek him. Seek the kingdom. Him. Seek the king of the kingdom. Seek the living plan, the standard of living that God has for you. Seek his righteousness. Everything else gets added. Everything else comes to right. Everything else falls into order. This is one of the hardest things we live in every day. What happened, I don't want to get too deep on you, but we got to get this over and then we can get to some really cool stuff next week. This is cool, but it gets so much better. But it opens up because of verse eight, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There, there's, a, there's a phenomena that happened at the cross that's talked about throughout scripture in many different ways. Theologians have argued over this for years and years and years. Historians argue over the context. It's simple that Jesus died on the cross and what happened on the cross happened once and for all and never needs to be repeated. Never needs to be repeated. However, it has an outworking in our life that is day to day, moment to moment. Not that Jesus has to die over and over and over again, but the effects of his, of his crucifixion happen moment by moment by moment. The moment you say, God, I'm trying to fix this and work it out on my own strength is the moment you get away from the grace that God gives through the crucifixion of Jesus into our life to set us to right is the moment we have to line back up to him and go, no, no, I'm not gonna work. I'm not gonna try to work this out. I'll do what you've called me to do. I'll do what you've mandated me to do as a believer, but... I am not going to force myself to try to fix my relationship with you through my actions or through my merit or through my struggling or through my striving. The moment you fix that, everything else gets fixed. The moment you fix how you see Jesus, everything else gets fixed in our life. When we see Jesus, when people really see Jesus, the effect that happens is their life is put back into proper order. When we really see Jesus as he is, the free gift of God's love, the personification of the love of God. Not an appeasement for sin, for a deity that would do nothing more than to hurt and to strike you down, but the unadulterated, unabashed love of God in perfect human form. When we see Jesus as he is, when people see Jesus, their life gets turned upside down. It gets put back to right. The things that are wrong are made right. The things that are broken are made right. The things that are hurting are made right. The, the tension in life is appeased. There's a peace that settles in that's talked about at the beginning of the chapter that we are finally at peace with God. And once you're at peace with him, everything else changes. This morning, I want to encourage you, ask the hard question in your heart and in your life. God, am I at peace with you? Do I understand the love that you have for me? Do I understand deeply the love that you have for me? 
God, do I see the cross as a torturous instrument where, where Jesus was trying to somehow appease the Father? Or do I see the cross as an extension of God's love? The same love that compelled him to create the world, the same love that compelled him to create me, that that same love is personified in the cross and in Jesus God, do I see that as an instrument that sets the world to right or is it still just a torturous death trap? How do you view the crucifixion? How do you view what happened to Jesus on the cross? Are you trying to prove yourself to him every time you look at that iconic imagery? Or have we come to a place where we accept it and we live in the unabashed love of God? The fact is, this is a day-to-day, moment-to-moment activity. That every day you're going to be, there's a tension that goes on. Paul said it this way, the thing I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And the thing I, I want to do, I feel like I can't do. And there was this tension in his heart. And he finally gave up and said, God, your love has to take the reins. This morning, open your heart up to the love of God. What's the worst that could happen? Open your heart up to the love of God. You'll be a different person. Your life will be transformed. Open your heart up to the true love of God and this world starts to take care of itself.